Race matters. 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 to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sharika Halleludin. And today on the show, we're talking about that and what it is to try and have these conversations with white people. Let's be clear, here at Race Matters will always be a show that seeks to not pander to a white audience and tell our stories on our own terms. But living in this colony, there is a reality that is grappled with. There is a lot we have to reckon and plead to as racially marginalised people to validate our humanity to be heard with all our complexities and dignity. We're not just talking about representation on screens in art, and we're not just talking about calling out racial injustice and having white people agree with us, like a status or show up once to a rally. Living in this colony to truly speak to white supremacy that is deeply embedded in our day to day is about our safety, well-being, and our livelihoods. Yet to talk about race in this country, to talk about racism in this country, there is still this threshold that we just can't move past. It's like naming whiteness and naming white supremacy become the event and we fail to delve into actual transformative anti-racist and anti-colonial work. It's frustrating, it's exhausting, it's stifling. We can't get into the nuances of the problem when there is barely any recognition that a problem exists. What can be really hard to reconcile is that these are not far-off extreme things occurring in only political debate or right-wing rhetoric. It can be in our closest and intimate relationships. It can be at work. So these conversations are charged with emotion and knowing that to speak to injustice can be at the loss of a friendship, a partner, a job, a social structure you once thought was safe and familiar. Today on the show, we're going to be joined by award-winning journalist Antoinette Latouf, who's just released a book titled How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. It reads as a sort of guidebook, speaking to race relations in this country. We spoke to her ahead of her appearances at Sydney Writers' Festival this week, which we'll get to a little later. 
Earlier this week, Antoinette sat down with Tanya Ali to talk about the book and how dedicating years of calling out racism has totally shifted her relationships and livelihood. Their chat delved deep and we didn't shy away from having conversations that challenge and problematize not only racist structures, but where we can also fail as people of colour when navigating interracial dynamics. We also spoke to the difficult line that we tread between speaking to the unjust unjust system we live in and imagining truly radical and alternative ways of being in this world. You are listening to Race Matters. I'm Tanya Ali, and in the studio with me is Antoinette Latouf, award-winning journalist, co-founder and co-chair of Media Diversity Australia, and the author of a brand new book titled How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. <laughs> Antoinette, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I love the smile in your voice, and that's exactly the impact I wanted to have. It will terrify some white people just reading the title, but the idea is to like make people chuckle a little bit. Oh, I just told a group of people in the, in the office that... I was about to interview you and told them the title and it killed. (laughs) Congratulations on the launch. Uh, How do you feel now that the book is out in the world? To be honest, the night before launch, I started to get really anxious and a bit terrified. Um, And many authors or anyone who's worked on a significant body of work would say, that's, you know, normal nerves. It's like throwing a big party and you want to know, is anyone going to rock up? And is there going to be enough food? And are people going to walk away saying it was a shit party? Yes, there was that. But there was also the added burden or layer of knowing that Speaking about race in this country is really difficult and it's rarely without consequence. And I knew that I was putting myself in the firing line and I know that I had prepared myself as much as possible to get to that point, to even have a civil and if not kind of cheeky, humorous conversation about what we can do to be better allies. But I had to take all of these measures to protect my safety. And so that included getting a digital security expert who did some pro bono work to look at my online presence to make sure I can't be found or hacked into, to ensure that there's no trace of my children online, they can't be located, to take myself off the electoral roll so I don't get some neo-Nazi at my front doorstep. These are all the things that as a a person of colour, to merely talk about racism, you have to do. And it's not, people might go, oh, that's a bit precious. Well, no, it's not. It's because I've had conversations with Yumi Steins, with Nigel Nguyen, uh, with other women of colour. I've heard and learned about Yasmin Abdul Majid and I know that I'm just trying to be careful and it's not going to be foolproof but I've done as much as I can to go into this um, prepared. So that's how I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's such a, um, I guess, mixed feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, take me back to the origin story. What led you to write this book in the first place? Well, a lot of people of colour will say this, that they hate talking, having to talk about race. They hate having to talk about diversity and inclusion. And here I am co-founding an organisation which does that. And it's an extra, it's extra work we do. We would love to just be great journos or great lawyers or whatever it is, our profession, great artists. But it's hard when you have privilege and you see injustice to be part of the systemic problem and not, and not try and challenge it. Um, and... 
and, and I guess that's how it came about. Like I was a journo who always wanted to be a journo from when I was a young kid. Um, you know, I grew up in Western Sydney. My parents were refugees. We were really povo, three families living in the one house. I went to a public school. I didn't know anybody who went to university or was a profession. So that whole world seemed out of out of touch and out of reach for me. And I had to fight and fight and fight, barrier after barrier, which I talk about in my book, just to get a seat at the table. And then when I got to the table, the media table, I was always relegated to kind of the kids' table or the young brown person's table. And so it was then that I thought, now this sucks. Um, Ten years into my career, I'm like, I'm no longer young. Yes, I can't change still being brown. Um, but I have experience and there isn't anywhere for me to have power within this structure. You know, the, the uh, many corporations, uh, any power institutions love a diverse cadet. They love a, you know, they love aid festival. They love to celebrate minorities when it's kind of in a little box and doesn't get out and behaves well. Um, and so that's how I started Media Diversity Australia with a Chinese Australian friend who felt the same um, kind of frustration. And from that was probably five years of advocacy and trying to change things within the media. And that's kind of, that's the loose friends part of it. I, I realised how uncomfortable it makes people. I lost friends, including my mentor, my career mentor. Um, I know that it probably compromised a, quite a few career moves I could have made. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess that journey as an advocate and then I was approached to write a book and I was like, oh, shit. What, like, and I jokingly said, like, what would I write about? Like, how to lose friends? And they're like, yeah, tell me more. That's the book. That's the book. And so that's how it kind of accidentally was born. As we've kind of discussed, the title is provocative, yes. uh, but it also speaks to how political and race relations are, you know, exactly that, relationships. So without getting into spoilers, how mm. do you approach navigating relationships with the people around you and not wavering on your political values? As as you've just discussed, you have lost people. Like how how has that informed where you are today? Look, it, 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 all, it always hurts, um, particularly if it's somebody you thought was a champion um, and was an ally and a supporter. Um, some of the things, there, there are various things I discuss in the book. I talk about racism and, as you would well know, um, being much more than individual acts. So people are like, well, I'm not racist and I don't think black people should be shot. And it's like, oh, well, thank you for that. Um, but it's more the systemic stuff, the unspoken stuff that a lot of white people and even some people of colour fail to get their head around, that this is not a meritocracy, that Australia, uh, all Australians, and especially our Indigenous community, don't have access to power. They are denied it. Um, at, every, at every juncture in every way. Um, and it's when we're trying to change, it's that stuff that really gets people offside. So one of the things I talk about is, yes, you know, we have racist uncle at barbecues and what we do to counter those conversations, but more using whatever power or privilege you have to confront the structural stuff because that's what's going to make real change. And some people may think, oh, gosh, well, what's little old me going to do to stop Indigenous deaths in custody or to stop um, unconscious bias in the recruitment process? And it can often seem so big and beyond you. Um, and there's a section in the book, and I won't spoil it too much, where I use... Um, social influences as a, a bit of a model and people go, well, I think, oh, well, I don't want to spruik diet tea and like what would a social media influencer do? And I use the steps successful social media influencers have and apply it to being a racial influencer. And that's things like find your niche, understand your audience, be consistent, 
engage with your audience. And so it may be that you, you've decided that your niche is to, I don't know, at community sports, increase representation for lower socioeconomic families of colour. That might be just your little, your little corner of it. Okay, get, understand your audience. Who are the soccer dads? Who makes the decisions? Who can fund it? Um, engage with your audience. Engage with those families of colour in your local community that can come into sport. So I try and break it down into a way that's as accessible for any individual to, to, to play a role so it doesn't feel like, oh, well, I can't change the fact that every high court judge is white because that often just, you know, it's just so beyond an individual. Well, yeah, it feels like a Impossible task. Totally. Uh, you mentioned Yasmin Abdel-Magid. In the book, you go through a few different case studies of people like her, like Adam Goods, who called out the white supremacy in this country and received a ridiculous, oh illogical, disproportionate backlash, uh, you know, having to leave their jobs or flee the country. We see it time and time again, any time there is a person who kind of speaks out. Um, why do you think there is such a heightened response to even just, you know, naming whiteness, naming structural racism and the violence upon which this colony is founded? Um, it's it's because those who have the power to respond in a situation like that, those institutions are white. And so what we saw is especially play out, a, the AFL enormously let... Adam Goods down, run by a bunch of white blokes like Eddie Maguire. The panels that were then dissecting what happened and breaking it down and responding, a bunch of white blokes like Sam Newman um, and some white women, to be fair. So our institutions failed us, which we, I mean, we know, I know it's a problem, which is why we started Media Diversity Australia, because in, in that instance, and um, if more people of colour had a voice, if more people of colour had power, we could change it. Well, we, could, we could at least challenge it if not change it. Problematic people in the media have done the most heinous things. Um, Live and, on air. You know, and got promotions and continue to thrive. And, and so the more people like us have access to power, the more we can challenge the system rather than be like, oh, yeah, Adam Goods is a flog. Yeah, no, they're not bullying because of racism. It's because he's a bully. Um, and then and that sets the, the public mood. Um, and obviously that has an enormous trickle-down effect on how people view difference um, and people view Indigenous people or someone, you know, like a presenter who has a Muslim name from Singapore. And so, yeah, it goes back to it goes back to white institutions of power. You traverse so many transformative and ongoing global events uh, from the Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too, contemporary Ozpol. What informs your decision making in being able to piece together these huge topics and do justice to the communities that you're writing about? Look, it's it's really difficult because this book, you know, firstly, Me Too and Black Lives Matter originated in the United States. And we know that they have a different history and a different narrative and a different journey to Australia. What I've tried to do and what's probably lacking in the general discourse is something that's really Australian, that looks at our power structures and that looks at our brutal colonisation and that looks at our media because while there is nothing, to, you know, the United States has many of its own problems, um, but one of the things it has, it does better than us, um, it, it has a black woman as vice president. We still got two, like, really mediocre white dudes to choose from as, as prime minister um, and our politics, and I do a comparison of our political system and representation here as, and then compare it to Canada, the UK, the US. So I, I do the similar thing for our media. We are still lagging behind enormously. Mm. 
And so that's, uh, you know, they have their own way to go and I'm certainly not giving them three gold stars, but they're further along in their journey. Um, it was impossible to talk about race without talking about Black Lives Matter. But I was, uh, I mean, I'm a woman with an Arab background. I was really, really conscious of the fact that I don't speak for Indigenous people. So I interview a lot of Indigenous people and get their perspectives and amplify their um, experiences and re reiterate that you can't be everything to everyone and so you be an ally. And it's our job also to step aside or to shine a spotlight um, on those who are more disadvantaged than us. And that's that brings me to another chapter where I talk about white feminism and how white feminism has fails people of colour and other intersectional women, continues to monopolise the discussion and really just feed into a system that uh, I call it, you know, we the, the white feminists, white progressive feminists will often talk about pale, male, stale and I add Gail to that, and she's a middle-class white woman who's exactly like these blokes, um, except she wears a, she probably wears a skirt. Um, and talk about how problematic that is because it, it completely tramples on Indigenous women and shuts the door in the faces of um, people of colour, shuts us out of boardrooms. Forget boardrooms. For some, for some refugee migrant women, and especially for Indigenous women, they are still fighting for their survival to make it through childbirth to ensure a life outside of prison and beyond domestic violence, to so many basic human rights are denied Indigenous women. And yet the feminism discussion has been monopolised by white middle-class women talking about boardrooms. And, and I'm not, to, I mean, boardroom representation is important, but so is living. <laughs> so is surviving. Absolutely. And it just shows that disparity, the the enormous gap, right? Um, I, I guess on that, you know, you have spoken about this, how this white feminism, white neoliberal feminism does a disservice to First Nations and communities of colour. How do you navigate the complexities of interracial dynamics within mm. non-white communities uh, without kind of conflating all of the complex experiences within them? Yeah, that's a really um, important question. And I do make the point where, you know, even the term people of colour, which has been adopted from the United States, how that can be problematic because some you, you and I identify as people of colour, um, but we aren't, it conflates the kind of the pecking order and and I hate to, or the high, I call it the hierarchy of hate. And anti-blackness is, you know, is at the bottom where, you know, the, the black communities get tr stomped on and mistreated the most. And that's important to, um, to not ignore and deny. And so, yes, I, I do make that point and I try and separate when I, when I refer to people of colour and Indigenous people to, to, to kind of separate the language and, um, and differentiating who I'm talking about. Um, and I and I speak to there's a, a Melbourne um, scholar who's of African heritage, and he does some research on this, um, the experiences of African Black African um, people in Melbourne, and some of the yes, the worst treatment often came from white Australians, but it was other Australians of colour. In particular, he highlighted some Asian and Arab communities that, in a workplace environment, treated African employees really badly paid them less, gave them the shittier jobs nobody else wanted to do. Um, and so I think that's a really under-researched um, area in Australia. We like to think of it as simple as black and white. But I, what Black Lives Matter really showed to me was cousins of mine sharing things like All Lives Matter. And I was like, hey, cuz, like you were in and out of the justice system and were targeted by police during the moral panic over so-called Lebanese gangs. Like you got a snippet of what Indigenous communities, First Nations communities have faced for generations. And yet, you're saying all lives matter, blue lives matter. Like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and what do you think? What do you think that's about? 
Um, it's about, you know, if we're not black or we can distance ourselves from black as possible, we'll won't be we won't be the bottom of the pile. Mm. We might get we might get some power. And so we that means we might stomp on First Nations people so that because if they're not stomping on us, they'd have to stomp on someone else. Um, and it's it's hugely problematic, but it's unfortunately not uncommon. And different waves of migrants have had a similar experience where they not only want to shut the door behind them, but then they adopt anti-black attitudes as well because the country has a legacy of anti-blackness. Mm, totally. And it's particularly, uh, I guess... Uh, problematic feels like a too small a word for it. But, you know, here where we are all settlers of colour on stolen land, you know, and the I suppose the connection between anti-blackness but then also like anti-sovereign rights, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's really fucked up, to be honest. I know, I wanted to say yeah. fucked up, but I didn't know how G-rated we could be. Problematic, as you say, is too diplomatic a term. It is fucked up. Let's talk about Media Diversity Australia. Yes. Uh, it's a national not-for-profit organisation you co-founded and currently co-chair that champions cultural diversity in Australian journalism and news media. And you established it as a tangible resource to hold media bodies to a more equitable standard. How have you measured meaningful change in the media landscape? Yeah, so that's we're now entering our sixth year. And I think I guess I want to point out and pay you know, the credit to also our, all our volunteers because, I mean, up until this year, we, they're announced paid staff members and I've moved on to the board. It was a side hustle. People, mm. we all had our jobs. We were journalists and media professionals who did this in addition to, and this is the extra burden and the labour that we do. Um, so firstly, a big shout out to all across the country, our volunteers and my co-founder, Isabel Lowe. Um, how we've been able to me- measure t- tangible change. One way is for ex- uh, when we started Media Diversity Australia, uh, Isabel and I were so frustrated by just how mono- monolithic our media was. And the best kind of example of that was breakfast television. And every single person across every single network was white. And this was mm. 2016, maybe. Yes, 2016. It's just unthinkable. Absolutely. And nowhere else in any Western similar democracies is that okay. Um, five years on, um, every breakfast television program bar one has an Indigenous person as a permanent fixture as, as a, you know, and an amazing person who's doing great things. That seemed unthinkable to achieve five years ago. So that's one kind of visible, that's what Australia wakes up to now. We wake up to an Indigenous face and a voice and a perspective, um, which should have happened a long time ago, but that's one tangible change. Uh, we did a, we released a report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories, two years ago, which was a bit of a report card. It was the first time there was a forensic examination of who's on our screens, who runs the boards, who's the editorial leadership, what are the attitudes specific to television. We're repeating that research this year. Um, and so we will have the metrics on where progress has been made. And there has been some progress um, and what more needs to be done and why and where and all of that stuff. So we will actually be able to hold a mirror up again to the industry. And it was so funny. It's hard working in the industry and, and crit- critiquing it, mm. you know, and some people hate the mirror so much. They hate the reflection. They want to break the mirror um, and discredit you as much as possible. So it's, quite, you know, sometimes can be quite uncomfortable walking into some rooms and God knows what people say when I leave. Um, but, you know, I, I give less fucks every day. Yeah, so. <laughs> you got to. Do you believe there has been real accountability? And, I mean, you know, that that does sound like there clearly has been a shift. Yeah, look, it, there has been. And, and some would say, you know, the on-screen stuff is just window dressing. 
Mm. I would agree with that. But also in that time period, when we first did the research, every single television news director was a white male. Now there are two females. One's a white female, one's a woman, um, an, uh, an Arab woman. That's actual power. That's decision-making power. And so it's not until our boards and those with real influence and power start to reflect our community that um, we really get um, we really get change. And that will take, you know, maybe five to 10 years plus. But it's it's happening. I feel like the D word is increasingly contentious among our communities. You touched on this before. Sometimes I can't even bring myself to use like the word diverse or diversity without doing air quotes. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that contention comes from the way that those terms place white people once again at the centre, um, but also the way these terms have been corporatized and absorbed into the capitalist machine. How do you feel about the term diversity? Does it still have a place in, you know, anti-racist discourse in 2022? Look, diversity alone, it is a very corporate term. Diversity alone um, is just is nothing. It's it can be box ticking. It can be window dressing to go look at our brown people in the finance department. You know, um, <laughs> uh, but it's the inclusion part that is really important because um, it's not until people can bring their whole identity to the workplace. Um, and you know, it is part of the corporate machine because diversity and inclusion. So there's you know Deloitte and McKinsey and all of those um, consultant type groups have crunched the numbers. From a corporate sense, it makes sense because Mm. it is more financially rewarding. So if you don't care about the social cohesion and anti-racism part, maybe you just care about profit. Um, And diverse organisations are more profitable and more innovative, staff stay longer, happier workplaces, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So having a diverse and inclusive workplace doesn't stop racism. You have to tackle racism and racist cultures within your organisation. You can't just hire a bunch of black people and go, well, now we are not racist. You, you know, And it's also an, an unfair burden on a person of colour to go into the organisation. You know what, not only am I here to ensure that the white people don't think I'm just a box hire, but I'm also here to challenge racism and do a really good job like it's at, my, at my actual day job. It's a really unfair burden that people of colour have to face. And do you think, you know, I guess the inclusion part of that term, uh, I mean, I sometimes take issue with it because I feel like it implies that the head honcho, the people on the board, the managing directors are white and are, you know, granting us access to Mm. this thing. I suppose there's a power imbalance in that almost. There is. And look, some people hate, you know, some people of colour don't like to diversity and inclusion policies, they don't like quotas, they don't like targets because they then question, was I hired because of my merit? Like it is it is uncomfortable because it acknowledges the power instru- the power imbalance and the power structure and that, you know, we will include you, please come on in. Mm. Um, and that in itself is problematic. But for me, I'm like, well, why don't we just get real about the status quo? Yeah. And it might be uncomfortable at first, um, but we, we just need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable for things to change. And nobody wants to be the higher after the first diversity target round because there will be friction, there will be comments. Like I've had comments in the past like, oh, they won't fire you. They can't fire you because, you know, like, like oh, I don't even have to really work hard I, uh, because I'm a diversity hire and that they just wouldn't fire me because I have more bandwidth to fail, which is actually opposite. You've got less bandwidth to fail. Exactly. But having those comments thrown at you, particularly if you're early in your career, can, it can be really damaging. Mm. 
Alongside your incredible career in media, you are also a parent. Mm. What is the intersection of your role as parent and your work in political advocacy? Well, I have two beautiful brown daughters um, and I, I know that when I'm away working, and actually I started Media Diversity Australia when my little, my second was quite little. Isabel had young children too at the time. And I guess for us, it was like a lot of women after they have children start to rethink like, what's my work-life balance? There's no such thing as balance, but what is it that I really want to do? Do I really want to put my children in care? What's it all for? And at that point, I had decided I don't want to go back and just work in an institution, the media the way it is. I don't want to leave my children to be part of a problem. And so it was at that point that we made a decision that we would continue being part of the media if we sought to advocate for better. Um, and so I see at the two enmeshed, you know, I add hopefully you know, working to, to for things to be better and fairer for people like my children um, and so that they can navigate the world in, in a in a, in a slightly better way than I was able to. But I almost, I also know I have enormous privilege compared to what my parents have. My parents can't read or write English. They can barely read or write Arabic. Um, they were pulled out of school when they were eight years old um, because of to, a bunch of reasons, because of conflict and also because they had to work to help their family survive. So, uh, yeah, I know that I have so much more privilege and I'm trying to use that power and privilege um, and not just, you know, worry about, private schools and, you know, get caught up in what happens once you get a certain amount of privilege. You start to only care about people like yourself. And I also acknowledge that it's not my community so much. I have to look to more newly arrived um, refugees and migrants who are now more marginalised, who are more powerless. I have so much more privilege. Unfortunately for First Nations people, it's just just as bad, if not worse. Mm. But from a migrant refugee perspective, there it's beyond me and my community now. Um, and it's and I guess it's the thing about with white feminism. It's ensuring that you're not just looking after your own the people who look and sound like you. That um, that your your allyship is always intersectional. And you're constantly checking yourself, right? You absolutely have to. And I, I you know, and, and it's just, I get similar things, um, critique and sometimes fair from uh, people with disability in that community saying, well, what about us? And what are you doing to support us? And that's something I talk about in my book when I say find your niche, mm. because it's impossible to be everything to everyone. And so what I'm doing more and more of is partnering and amplifying um, people with disability and understand and, and, and checking myself and my my privileges in terms I'm an able-bodied person um, and, and reminding myself of that. So it's a con continual learning process when no one gets it right. Back to the book, uh, mm. you know, it, it almost reads like a guidebook for navigating the way that race relations and power impact our world and no doubt a lot of people are currently and will find resonance with it. I think, though, it's a difficult line that we tread between speaking to the unjust system that we live in and imagining truly radical and alternative ways of being in this world, of restructuring this world, how do you find that balance? I guess my approach is to change the current systems. And I guess I focus on you know, the arts, uh, the judiciary, uh, the media, politics, because they're the biggest power brokers. Um, and I, my approach is within those, you know, for example, Media Diversity Australia was to work within mainstream media. It wasn't about starting uh, another media platform, for mm. example, and taking on Rupert Murdoch and, you know, trying to compete with him in a commercial sense. So I guess my approach, I and mean, I don't have the answer to that, um, but my approach is to get more power within the current structures and to change it from the inside. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's just how I think it. Um, I can do it. 
Antoinette Latouf, thank you so much for joining us oh, on Race you. Matters. Before we let you go, there is one question that we ask all of the guests that come through on the show, and that is, when did you realize there was power in your race? Power in my race? You know, I wasn't able to reclaim the power um, and the, my love of my race and my cultural group probably until about 10 years ago um, because with September 11, Cronulla riots, um, the moral panic over so-called Lebanese gangs. It was really hard being in my late teens and early 20s and being a person who was of a Middle Eastern appearance um, and part of the Lebanese community. Probably not until the past 10 years that I was um, able to stand and proudly say, I am an Arab woman from Western Sydney. Oh, two, of those, two of those things were maligned um, and hate, you know, and hated, um, and people would kind of take a deep breath or sort of step back. So I would say in in the past ten years, and you know, we talked about my children earlier. They say it with so much pride, and the pride I wish I had as a child. That is all for race matters this week. Thank you so much to our guest Antoinette Latouf for joining us. You can catch her speaking at two events for Sydney Writers Festival this week and we'll leave all the event details in our show notes. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash race matters. 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 Race matters.